So I have a forward question for you today. How's your new life in Christ going? Do you feel good? Do you feel encouraged? It varies from day to day, doesn't it? As a pastor, uh, I am often uh, given the privilege of walking alongside somebody who's really struggling spiritually and emotionally. And I've had conversations with people who I've grown to really love and appreciate. And one of the things that many of us deal with is anger. And we often will find ourselves in a situation that reminds us of a past experience or a past trauma, and we respond in a way that is not loving. It's especially frustrating if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you know that Jesus had set an example for how you're supposed to interact with people even when they make you angry or if they do something against you. And it's very frustrating. It causes grief. You obviously hurt the other person's feelings. And so, so how, do you, how do you deal with that? And it's not so easy as to say, well... You know that you had that trauma. You know you're going to respond in that certain way, so just recognize that that's why you're doing it and don't do it anymore. It's not that simple, is it? In today's reading, it seems that John is being very black and white. If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. If you love your brother, you're in light. There's no one between. And we read that, and, and we can understand that. We can rationalize that. But when you're in the moment... It can really challenge you. And so the last brother with whom I spoke about this anger issue, we actually have a lot in common. It's, it's something from our childhood, from a past experience, and it, it flips a switch. The only way to recover from that and to begin to grow out of that is to name it and call it and admit what you've done and to let God have his will in you. So you can cling to that past traumatic experience. You can cling to whatever caused that reaction and you continue to live in that darkness. Or you can begin to really recognize and claim and call for yourself what you know to be true rationally, that you are a child of God. And that changes you in an instant. So how is your new life in Christ? Do you feel new? As Christians, we're fond about talking about how we are reborn by water and by spirit and given that new life in Christ. And we know that we have that certain hope of an eternal life in Christ. And it is supposed to lift us up and draw us in. But what identity, what has that impact had in your life, that identity in Christ? Has it had the impact that you think that it should or that you've been told by every pastor at a pulpit that you should be experiencing in your life? Why or why not? Let's look at this in more of a worldly term. Often we like to think of something that's very attractive to us, that maybe we will be better. Maybe some of you have thought, oh, I want to be super rich and I want to have lots of power. That would be really cool. Or maybe it's something as simple as I'd love to meet a celebrity that I really would, uh, would, would love to find out if they're as real as I think they are, like, like maybe Paul McCartney, or maybe you're a fan of Scarlett Johansson, or, or maybe even Justin Bieber. That's not my particular bent, but that's all right. <laughs> maybe the idea of jumping out of an airplane, parachuting, or climbing Mount Everest, 
That is the pinnacle, literally, of what you want to do, and it just sounds so attractive. But then you look at the real implications of those pipe dreams, those things that are so attractive. Real wealth and power brings with it a huge amount of responsibility and accountability. For many people, if they meet that celebrity that they've always wanted to meet, they're dumbfounded. They can't speak any words, or some may even pass out because they're, they're overcome with emotion. And the thought of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, <laughs> or maybe donning an oxygen mask and a, and a gigantic backpack and, and putting your life in peril by climbing up a mountain, maybe when you actually maybe get that opportunity, you think, that's crazy, and, and you become this gelatinous pile of goo, not wanting to do anything. I would suggest that often we face those same experiences when we're looking at this new life in Christ. You are a new creation, and it can be terrifying because this world teaches you to rely on yourself, what you have control over. And we waffle back and forth, and sometimes you have a really good day in Jesus, and other times you have a really struggling day because you keep relying on yourself. Well, welcome to being a Christian in the world and welcome to being utterly and totally human. This true prospect that you have been made a new creation in Christ and, and that you, you can now leave your old self behind and enter this new life in Christ and that your life will never be the same, it sounds amazing. But there's a lot that we need to work through. So I want to jump back a little bit. We've been looking at, at 1 John, but there's a parallel in John 3. And we're going to read that text in a little bit, not right now, so you can go ahead and douse that. Thank you for being attentive. But we're going to, I want to look, I want to set up John 3 first, the Gospel of John 3. We have Nicodemus, and he's meeting Jesus Christ. He's wanted to meet Jesus, right? And he thinks he knows what Jesus is going to tell him and, and he's going to go ahead and, and make him feel good about himself because he's a Pharisee and all of that. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a great teacher who's come from God for no one can do the things that, can, that you've done unless God is with you. But Jesus responds with a sobering truth, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is dumbfounded. That's not what he thought. He was offering a simple greeting and telling Jesus how great he is. And Jesus said, you're nothing unless you're born again. John 3 begins with this interaction of this Jewish Pharisee with Jesus the Christ, God of the flesh. And it's interesting to note that Scripture tells us that Nicodemus sought out Jesus by night in the dark because he wasn't quite sold on this thing. He recognized Jesus, but it's interesting when we read that if we're in the dark, we're really not, we're not seeing things clearly. And Nicodemus chose Jesus in the dark probably because he didn't want other people to see him, the other Pharisees, the other people who looked at the Pharisees as the pinnacle of being godly. And he even acknowledged Jesus as being a prophet of God, but still in the darkness. However, it's important to note that later on in John in chapter 7, 
Nicodemus is called out again as a Pharisee, as actually a part of the Sanhedrin, which is part of the Supreme Court, essentially, of Judaism. And he is there to defend Jesus when he's being convicted. And he even embraced that Jesus was preaching the truth. This same Nicodemus is the one who joined Joseph of Arimathea, I was thinking John, I knew that wasn't right, Joseph of Arimathea, who prepared the body of Jesus following his crucifixion. It's the same Nicodemus. So you see this Nicodemus who approached Jesus in the dark, really realizing who he was, but was too afraid of what the world was going to think about him. And then he finds himself defending Jesus in front of his peers and eventually recognizing Jesus for who he is, the Son of God who was crucified for you and for me. In this initial meeting, Nicodemus was first and foremost, he was dazzled by the miracles of Jesus. He healed people. He drove out demons, doing incredible work, all to point to the kingdom of God. By the way, miracles, as I understand it as a pastor, only happen if they can point people directly to the kingdom of God. Miracles don't just happen because you pray really hard, I'm sorry to say. It's always God's will and for his purposes that a miracle happens. Often they happen in most unexpected ways at unexpected times. But it's in this initial meeting that Nicodemus is attracted to him because of these miracles. But we know from Scripture it's not the signs and the wonders. Jesus is very specific to tell him it's about this change, this new life in becoming a child of God. That's where the real miracle happens. And everyone in this room is part of that miracle. You ever thought of it that way? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which means a separated one, separated from the rest. Pharisees separated themselves so that they could continue to focus on the law, not just the law of Moses, but the law of the scribes. And that was tens of thousands of laws that dictated every aspect of life from how you lived, how you went to the bathroom, how you ate. All of those things. And it was impossible to keep the law. We know that. That's the Holy Spirit convicts us in that. Reminds us that we cannot do anything by ourselves, but by God in Christ Jesus. Well, not only that, but Nicodemus is part of that 70-member elite group of the Sanhedrin, that Supreme Court. They literally had control over, and they, they, were, they had the law was held over the, uh, the heads of every single Jew in the world. They had a lot of power. And Nicodemus was understandably troubled when he met Jesus, the celebrity that he wanted to meet, and the celebrity gave him the smackdown. He said, no, it's, it's not what you think. So everything that he had been taught, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, was completely undone in his understanding of how we have a relationship with God. So he tried to rationalize Jesus' words, if you remember from John 3. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus ramped it up another notch. He said, truly, truly, I say, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Flesh is perishable. God, the Holy Spirit, is eternal. Nicodemus was clinging 
to keeping the law because he could have control over whether he kept that or didn't. It's the same way that we interact with the people around us. We know how we're supposed to act around them, but we don't always do that, do we? And even as Christians, we know that we're saved by the grace of God alone. It's the same place you and I get tripped up in our walk with Christ daily. And it comes down to your identity in Christ. I cannot emphasize that enough. If you know who you are, or more importantly, whose you are, you can lean into that identity to carry you through those most difficult times. And whether you're dealing with addiction, whether you're dealing with regret, whether your, your life feels like it's a complete mess right now, if you know to whom you belong, no one can take that away from you. I've shared with you before that the privilege of walking the grounds in Poland of Auschwitz I and II, I've done it on three occasions, I don't care to ever go back. What we hear over and over again, and there are so few remaining who survived that horrible time, but they say the one thing that the Nazis could never take away from me. They took away my family. They took away my home. They took away my city, everything. They could never take away my faith that I am a child of God. And this certainly hits home today. The ministry that my wife and I are privileged to lead Spiritual Orphans Network. We deal with spiritual orphans, those who don't know that they have a Father in Heaven who loves them. Brothers and sisters in Christ who they can call a family and who will walk alongside of them for the duration of their life on earth. And you compound that because they've come out of communism where they were forbidden to have any sort of faith at all. You've been told that there is no God. If you even speak the word of God, you'll be punished. Is it any wonder this world is in the shape that it's in? We've got so many people who haven't a clue who they are. And it causes a great deal of strife and horror. So when we deal with anger for hating our fellow brother and sister, what do we do with that? Mika, I didn't ask you about this, but you know that we have two Ukrainians with us, our daughters. How do you think they feel about Russians right now? Can you blame them? High and mighty, we can say, oh, you should love your enemy. But while the enemy is going after your family, that's a tough one. We've had discussions about this. The first time it really came to a head, Andrew and I wanted to act like parents and say, oh, no, 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 you, you, should, you should love your enemy. And I came out as a pastor, you know, you're a child of God. Oh, it was the wrong thing to say at the time. They're in the thick of it right now, and it's difficult. Rationally, they can know it, but emotionally, this is a, a rough time. Conversely, we, we have a young lady who's from Albania. 
there are two Serbian boys in school with her. If you know anything about recent history of wars, the Serbians did horrific things to Albanians. But right now we're removed by several decades. And so this Albanian young lady, Alba, can look at the Serbian boys and say, they personally had nothing to do with what was perpetrated on our country. But there's still that angst. She said, if you asked my dad, he would hate them. These are difficult things. We don't have real answers, but all we can do is cling to our identity in Christ and know that God's will be done as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And to remind you, you're only in shadow because the light is behind you. And it's a valley, which means you're going to come out of that valley eventually. We're walking alongside our beloved daughters from Ukraine right now. Letting them mourn. Letting them be angry. They know who they are in Christ. God will see them through. So we have what communism did to these countries and now what it continues to perpetrate because you have people like the crazy man in Moscow who doesn't know who he is and is acting out in anger and trying to control things and making irrational decisions because he's controlled by the evil one. And yes, this is spiritual warfare that we're witnessing in the world. Not just in Ukraine, but in Ethiopia, in the Middle East, everywhere where we're seeing this strife. But you and I, as Christians, are to remain strong and walk alongside our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are wallowing right now in the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that eventually, according to God's good timing, his will be done. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 4, He's talking about King David, and I'm reading specifically from verses 6 through 8. Just as Jesus, rather, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts as righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you're familiar with King David and the sin that he perpetrated on others, He wrote Psalm 51, he wrote Psalm 52, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, and Psalm 32 in response to the forgiveness that he was given by God after what he perpetrated on Bathsheba and her husband. He raped Bathsheba. He impregnated her. Then he killed her husband. And yet this horrific thing that he did, God was still using him to do his will. And we can't wrap our human minds around that. But God's will be done. And we cling to that. And thanks be to God, David understood this, that because of God and God alone, God still had a plan for him despite everything that he had done. And so I have a couple of questions for you. Is guilt and shame a major problem or not enough of a problem in this world? And do we perhaps maybe try to explain it away, the actions of others? Another question, how can we know whether our guilt or shame or conviction from God 
Or is it Satan accusing you? Number three, must confession of sin involve genuine contrition of your heart? That's kind of a law and love type of question. And how can we develop a tender conscience before God? And can our conscience be too tender? David, after receiving forgiveness of God, he wrote in the Psalms, and was referring specifically to Psalm 32, that he'd been given this joy. He was lifted up again. He was given a new life in God. And, and he knew his purpose once again. But then he revisits where he had been. He was wallowing in shame. He knew what he had done was wrong. And he was shame-filled and pretended that it didn't happen. And he hoped that nobody else would connect the dots. Of course, we know that he was convicted later. So I ask you, is guilt or shame a problem in this world or not enough of a problem? And I think it depends on to whom you speak. We do. We try to explain away people's actions. But how does it reflect on you as a child of God? I think guilt and shame have been kind of swept under the carpet in, in popular culture today. And it's not so that we can judge people. We just need to recognize who we are and admit to it. How can we know whether a guilt or shame is, is conviction from God or if it is being blamed by Satan? And that can be a double-edged sword. That can be used in different ways depending on a person's bent. And so I'd like to, to read through John 3, verses 17 through 21, to tie into today's sermon. And uh, that can go up on the screen, and we'll, we'll talk about this. This, again, is the continuation of Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus Jesus has told him, you have to be reborn. Not only that, and, and most of us know the uh, uh, John 3.16. You see that you know, at, at golf competitions all the time. You hear it in sermons a lot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's our mantra. We love to share that, and it's absolutely true. But then these words continue with it. Reading from John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. This is redemption. This is what each, each of us has received in Christ Jesus. And so... The devil will try to condemn us and make us believe that we are worthless and unworthy, which we are, but God loves us. And that's something the devil can't wrap his mind around. Whatever you've done, wherever you are, whoever you've hurt, does not define you. Whatever you're struggling with, whether it's your identity, whether it's addiction, it does not define you. 
God defines you, and he says that you are beloved, you are a daughter, you are a son. He's claimed you to himself. Nothing else matters. You must believe this. And not just believe it, but, but live it, claim it. Shame only serves the devil's purposes because the devil is about death. God is about life and eternal life. So the blessing of confession, if you have hurt somebody, if you've done something wrong, take it to that person as uncomfortable as it is. Waiting longer will not make it better, I promise you. Claim it, and then let God work in you and around you. The people that I um, bless the council, talking about anger issues and how they've hurt people, the only way to get past that is to take it directly to the person and admit what you've done, ask for forgiveness. And even if they don't forgive you, you've made your confession because your, your, your confession is before God first and foremost. Must confession be contrite and sincere? Absolutely. If it's not, then you're just living by the law. But if you're living by the gospel, that's, that's true, and it, it, it changes you. I'm reminded at the people at the ark. Can you imagine here was Noah building the ark? You're crazy, Noah. This is not going to happen. Noah builds the ark. It took, what, 300-plus years? Time was different then. And then the rains came, and the floods came, and the ark started to float and all of a sudden, there were people clamoring around the ark. I can just imagine this. And all of a sudden, they're saying, God, we're so sorry we didn't listen to you. But it was too late, wasn't it? God has given you a free ticket to ride right now. He asked that you be real. You confess. Let him work in, around, and through you. King David wrote Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and make a right spirit within me. That can only happen if you're being real with God. The goal is freedom. By the sovereignty of God, you are made free. How can you develop a tender conscience toward your creator? By being real. It's not about false religiosity. It's not about clinging and, and staying behind in your, your religious identity but doing nothing about it. It's also not denying what God has done in you. I think sometimes we get wrapped up in that false humility where we say, oh, I'm not so good at this thing. God gave you gifts for a reason, to bring glory to his name. And by denying what God gave you, you're, you're separating yourself from what he's doing in you. He's created a new life in you. So do you believe Shame is removed. So then you have free will. And some of you are getting uncomfortable because you know I'm a Lutheran and I'm about to talk about free will. Walk with me here. Look at it from this perspective. You're given free will by God. You can exercise your will, which is not free. It's the most costly will you will ever exercise that will condemn you. God gives you his will freely. His will is the only will that will free you. Seeking God's will in your life will free you. 
Focusing on your own will will not. It will condemn you. And so by exercising free will, the only free will is God's will. I remind you, Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane, about to go and be crucified, praying, praying so hard and so scared as a human being that he's, he's sweating blood, saying, my father, not my will, but your will be done. Knowing that God would glorify him and work through him. Jesus chose the only will that was free. That was God's will. And he died for you and me on the cross. So what is God's will? Very simply, it's freedom in Christ. That's his will for you and for me. This is a great transformation that has been done in us. Can you imagine? And it's a radical transformation. It's, it's not radical Islam. It's not radical conservatism. It's not radical liberalism. The radical thing that God does is freeing you. And it goes against everything that this world tells you. You've been radically changed in Jesus Christ, and this is nothing you did for yourself. It's probably nothing you asked for, but he did it anyway because he loves you. You've been radically changed for a very different life in this world and to walk in a different way, to be transformed. And the only way you're going to make a difference in this world to the glory of God is by other people seeing how radically changed you are, how radically different you are from this world. And God has allowed that to happen. People are not brought to Christ by miracles alone. They're certainly not brought to Christ by, by fog machines and lasers that happen in some worship services. I'm not speaking against that, but that's not what brings people to Christ. What brings people to Christ is you. People seeing that you are different. That you have a hope, even when most people would find themselves hopeless in situations like war, divorce, life's end, unemployment, who have an inner hope, that attracts people to Christ. And it's not to your glory, it's to God's glory alone. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." The real prospect that you are radically transformed in God is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You've been gifted in wonderful ways. Don't deny the gifts that God has given you. To glorify his name. If you've been carrying this burden, don't carry it anymore. Give it to Christ. It's a known fact that career criminals, criminals? Criminals, let's try that. Career criminals will return to jail because they're more secure in that. They cannot imagine what truly being free is like. They've gotten so used to being in a cell, in the darkness, being controlled, that when they're released after they've done their time, they will deliberately do another crime to get back into jail where it's secure. That's a misery that they know and that they own. They can't imagine what it would be like to be truly free in the world, in the light, making a difference, being part of community. Don't hold yourself in prison. Let God have his way with you. 
Recognize that the valley that you're going through right now, where maybe you are struggling with hating a brother or a sister, that God can change that in you. God can use that to his glory. Believing and embracing what God did for us, that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, is all because he did give you that new life. That he so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his only son. That if you believe in him, you will not perish, you'll have eternal life. And this is not just for you, it's to his glory. So the word hagios in Greek is usually translated as saint or holy. What it really means is different. So if you struggle with being called a saint, as we're sinners and saints at the same time, don't think of yourself as being holy as a saint. You're just different, different than the rest of the world. So try being hagios more more often. Try being different. Let people know that you've been radically transformed and changed in Christ. Especially when somebody does something against you. What we read in scripture, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, offer the other cheek. We're supposed to pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who have persecuted you. If they're thirsty or hungry, give them something to drink or eat. Give them your cloak. This is not what this world teaches. And in case you think this is just a higher and mightier than you can be, let me remind you of what Christ dealt with. I'm reading from Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us, then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in a time of need. Jesus, the Son of God, has felt everything that you felt. Do you think he was feeling love for the people in the temple when he was turning over the tables? Jesus got angry when he was confronted by the Sanhedrin, when he was confronted by the Pharisees. He was angry because he loved them. Why are you doing this? There's a whole other way. I want you to be free. God wants you to be free in Christ. He wants you to rejoice and recognize that you can be the light of the world because the light of the world is in you. You can be that beacon on the hill, not just a city press, but as an individual. And so I'm going to challenge you before we end this. I'm in the global missions business. I love to take people overseas to see how they can serve alongside of people who have gone through communism, who have no idea that there is a God, much less a God who loves them and calls them and that's very easy for us to say, yes, let's go share Jesus with people on the other side of the world. What about your next door neighbor? What about the people across the street from you? What about your own family? 
I challenged myself on this. We just moved into a brand new neighborhood. We don't know our neighbors yet. So this challenge is laid down for me. They haven't a clue who we are. We don't have a clue who they are. I've traveled many places in this world to share the love of Christ. Will I do it for my next door neighbor? Dennis and what's it, Debbie? Okay, Dennis and Debbie next door. They're going to know that we love Jesus. The people on the other side, I don't know their names yet, but they're going to know our names. Thank you. Jim, my wife Angela, she met Jim. So pray for us so that we love our neighbors. You can do it too. God bless you all. I'm so glad to be back. I've been traveling a lot, and it's great to be back with our family in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we can hardly believe that you love us so much despite who we are, what we've done, where we've been, what we think, how we treat others, that you still love us enough that you want us to be free. Free to seek your will and to do your will to your glory that we also might know the joy, love, and peace that surpasses all understanding. So Father, bless us, strengthen us, and keep us hagios in this world. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.